1: This is Demetrius Spinrad. And
0: this is Isaac Meyer.
1: And you're listening to Criminal Records Podcast, a podcast about some of the weirdest cases in true crime history. And I thought today, let's go ahead and end the year on a real feel-good crime, a real confusing feel-good crime, because the question of whether or not a crime is committed in this episode, and if so whose responsibility it's supposed to be to actually deal with this crime is going to get a little bit complicated.
0: You know, well, feel good and complicated. I guess one of those is kind of a standby, a standby for this podcast. The other one less so.
1: Yes, this is a one of those cases where we have multiple governments trying to claim the same land at the same time. And the question of which country's criminal code and which parts of that criminal code, because there are different criminal codes that apply to different people, depending on whether you're a soldier or a civilian, all of that is going to get fantastically complex. And if there's one thing we love on this podcast, it is an overly complicated legal dispute about a completely insignificant problem.
0: Well, I mean, you say insignificant, but I mean, this is like a a complex, legal, convoluted issue. I have to assume it's about something important, because why else would anyone care enough to get that invested in trying to solve it?
1: Well, this is one of our local cases. Both of us have actually been to the location where this crime, if it was a crime, happened. We have actually seen monuments devoted to this incident, and we've read historic plaques commemorating it. There have been songs about it. There have been kids' books telling the story. I've even found pictures of sculptures of the only victim of this international incident, and that victim is one pig.
0: Well, I mean, that's not a, that's not very kosher, but what did the pig do that was so heinous it started an international incident?
1: Oh, we'll get into that. Uh, but... Yes, this is the story of the pig war. And the pig here is not a metaphor or a name for a territory like the Bay of Pigs or anything about that. I am talking about one pig that did a fairly normal thing for pigs to do in the wrong person's garden that nearly changed the course of history. But before we get into this historically important pig, we're going to have to talk about one lonely little island in an archipelago at the far western end of North America, and we're going to have to explain why that pig was on that island and what happened to it.
0: Okay, so what's the pre-pig backstory of this island then?
1: So there's an island in the area uh, that is known today as the Gulf of Georgia. These islands are smack dab in the middle of the water between what is now the northern bit of Washington State and what is the southern bit of British Columbia. So for folks who have a hard time grasping the geography, you're not the only one. I will definitely put maps in the show notes because this is a hard one to visualize. And as we will explain, it was a hard one for a lot of the people who discovered this land to visualize as well. So British Columbia has a big island called Vancouver Island, which confusingly does not contain the city of Vancouver And that island kind of fits into the curved bit of Washington State. So Washington State has kind of this curved chunk, and Vancouver Island slots into that chunk. There are lots of little bitty islands poking out of the water between those two land masses. Some of these islands are, in the words of the University of Washington Publications in Geology, as small as a city lot... And pretty much functionally useless to farm or build on. They've got a lot of awesome names like Skull Island, Deadman's Island, Mummy Rocks, Victim Island, because there are a lot of reefs and rocks that are just under the surface of the water that make navigating this stretch of water a very risky proposition, especially if you don't have modern navigational technology.
0: You know, when this podcast really takes off and we become rich multimillionaires, we should build a giant mansion on Skull Island. Patreon.com slash backwards podcast, help make Skull Island happen.
1: <laughs> Our supervillain origin story is waiting just a few hundred miles away. But there are some islands in this archipelago that are big enough that there's actually value in the land. And uh, like I said, a little bit hard to describe in podcast format, It's tricky for cartographers to get this right when they're sailing around the Gulf and they don't have an aerial view of the layout or modern technology that will help them map out exactly where they are in this uh, confusing and unmapped region of the world. The island that we are going to be talking about today is now known as San Juan Island. It is the second largest island in the smattering of small islands. It has a total landmass of only 55.39 square miles. Most of its shores are elevated rock, which are pretty bad places to try to get off a boat. But it does have an unusual number of bays that make decent harbors. And that's what's important to the explorers who are traveling around this area by boat.
0: I mean, San Juan Island is lovely and, you know, a wonderful place to visit. And you shouldn't go because there are too many goddamn tourists already. And I want it to be quieter when I'm there. But before we return to that, why are all of these places named like cool, like pirate islands? Uh, This is Washington state. We're not that exciting.
1: So the guys naming these islands had a lot to get through. And by the time they made it all the way to the Gulf of Georgia, to be quite honest, they had used up a lot of their better name ideas. I should say for the sake of clarity, these are the names that European explorers gave them. Coast Salish people who'd been living in the territory for a very long time were already very familiar with the archipelago, already knew where all of these islands were, and had their own place names for the islands within it. But who listens to the people who actually live in this area? When European explorers reached the West Coast, they started mapping out these islands and trying to claim bits of them without much input from all of those folks who knew where everything was and already lived here quite a lot of imperial powers at the time were basically doing this going around trying to map and name everything that they could get their hands on uh and there was this massive rush to for everyone to just kind of come in and grab as much of the new world as they could for themselves spanish russian and british explorers all started nosing around the area and then when american declares its independence in 1776 the leaders of this new country pretty quickly start thinking about how they're going to expand westward. But all these cool ominous sounding island names have probably tipped you off at this point. This particular archipelago is not for the faint of heart. Spanish explorers are some of the first out of the gate in the attempt to map and claim it. They tend to try to get to areas first and start naming everything they see And they're doing this because they're actually following a very old papal bull that is interpreted as the rite of first discovery. So according to the Spaniards, if you're the one who finds and names something, it's yours now. This was originally written all the way back in 1452 as a go-ahead to, quote, to invade, conquer, storm, attack, and subjugate, unquote, uh, the Saracens. But the Spanish go ahead and keep interpreting that for centuries as the right to pretty much play finders keepers with any land that they happen to see. And this right of first discovery comes in real handy for the Spanish when a certain Spaniard claps eyes on a whole new lot of land exactly four decades later in 1492.
0: I, I, I should point out, because we will otherwise get some angry tweets, that I believe Christopher Columbus was Genoese. He was one of them Italians, you know. Um, And also, I just as as a teacher who edits, I have to point out that by invading and conquering something, you by definition also storm attack and subjugate it. So if we could just, you know, note to the the author, you know, concision is clarity. Um, But there's also one other key thing that we're missing here. I'm pretty sure some people already live on all of this land, so it's not really the right of first discovery. It's been discovered.
1: Well, according to the Pope, they are heathens who have not heard the word of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that means they don't count.
0: Ah, yes. Well, I mean, it's true. It's not like Christianity has ever, say, taken anything else that belongs to other people first, like an entire monotheistic conception of the world, and just said, this is ours now and we're taking it. They would never do that. That's, you know, that's ridiculous.
1: Oh, you always get so cranky around Christmas.
0: Oh, my God. I just, I just can't. Something, I just can't anymore.
1: So during this era, Spain leans a lot on the Pope to try to justify their territorial rights, and that is going to get pretty weird in just a bit. Uh, So let's move from Spain to Britain. The British are no longer Catholic, but they are also very gung-ho about the right of first discovery. So the race is on to send ships out there and just name and claim everything in sight. You see something, you name it, it's yours now. This is a big part of the reason why our place names around here get pretty odd, even by the fairly weird standards of American place names. Explorers like George Vancouver from Britain are trying to name everything they discover as fast as possible. And that's why we end up with a mishmash of uh, butchered and sometimes misunderstood Coast Salish words. A lot of names of George Vancouver's school buddies back in England. If you even knew George Vancouver for like 10 minutes in elementary school, there's probably a mountain named after you somewhere. Yeah, wasn't
0: the actual Rainier like he never came to the West Coast or like he just got, George Vancouver was just like, I like that guy. He gets the big mountain.
1: yeah. Yeah, a lot of a lot of our most famous mountains are named after guys who happened to be on good terms with George Vancouver in like middle school, whatever the the equivalent of posh British middle school was at the time. Uh, So a lot of them also have Spanish names because they were originally discovered by the Spanish. And then, of course, we've got our descriptive names that tell you that the guy who spotted them was having a bad day. That's how we end up with names like Deception Pass and Cape Disappointment.
0: I did assume for a very long time that Cape Disappointment was like a joke name that the locals used and not like the actual, like the legal technical name of a place. But it is. Uh, I haven't actually been. I guess it's not that nice. I'm not really that encouraged to go.
1: Well, if you're sailing around trying to spot things from your ship and name them as fast as possible and you sail around that cape and you see a lot of fog, I imagine it's fairly disappointing.
0: You know, I think you could make some pretty good performance art out of like going to Spain and just naming things and saying they're yours now. And if anyone gets uppity about it being like, yeah, but you're Spanish. So like, eh. <laughs> anyway,
1: I invite you to give that a try.
0: I- Patreon uh, bonus goal. Uh, So you mentioned the Russians were also up here. Why don't we have more things named St. Petersburg Island or Potato Vodka Land or other offensive stereotypes about Russians?
1: So Russia is also expanding during this period, but it has a slightly different directive than England and Spain because Russia has a different set of problems. They already have a massive amount of land and not enough subjects for the czar to really get use of the land that they already have. So Russian expansion in this period is more of a play for workers than it is a need for even more land, especially northern land that is very cold and hard to work for a lot of the year. So their attempts to grab a piece of the Americas, uh, they end up risking biting off quite a bit more than they can chew. Russia would love a piece of that sweet, sweet American fur trade, but they end up having a hard time bringing over enough colonists to settle any land that they claim. And then once they manage to get some colonists onto the continent, they have a really hard time supplying those colonists with enough food to last the winter. The Russian expeditions have a particularly rough go of things. They have some shipwrecks, they end up with difficulty navigating up rivers and you can't claim anything that you didn't see. So you have to send your boats up river to continue claiming things. They also, like I said, have a lot of problems supplying the settlements that they have further up north in Alaska. I'm really bummed that we couldn't spend more time on this because it is amazing. And I'm trying to get you to, to do a History of Japan episode about this guy. At one point, they have to send an extremely kooky bureaucrat to beg a Spanish settlement in California to do them a solid and break the rules about not trading foreigners about not trading with foreigners so they can send some food up north to the Russians. I don't have time to get into the history of that whole disastrous expedition or the fact that that guy attempted to declare a one-man war on Japan on his way home. Please do an episode about this I man. Actually-
0: I am literally working. I I didn't do a whole thing on him, but there's a History of Japan episode on smallpox vaccination because he's part of the reason that that uh, vaccine uh, information was transmitted to Japan that I think will be out a couple of weeks after this goes out. So he also helped keep people from dying of smallpox. So that's nice.
1: Hey, You win some, you lose some. That was not the only thing he was attempting to transmit to Japan. That was the only thing that successfully made it over.
0: He didn't try to do it. It just happened by accident.
1: So Russia does not have a lot of luck in the Pacific Northwest. It decides to concentrate instead on its Alaskan territory. Um, That doesn't go super well in the long term for Russia, but they get a little money out of that land deal in the end.
0: Yeah. And I mean, there's not like there's anything valuable in Alaska where they would have been, you know, kicking themselves for giving it up. So but you mentioned something about colonists. I thought we were just allowed to go around here and name things and say they're ours now. Why do we need colonists then?
1: So as the imperial powers hash things out through a series of conflicts and then treaties ending those conflicts, they realize it is not enough to merely call dibs on the land. Uh, Especially because if everyone is sending their explorers out at the same time, a bunch of them end up claiming dibs on the same land at the same time. And because communication is not instantaneous, they then have to go back to their own countries and then tell the other countries what they've discovered. So it turns into a big mess of everyone attempting to call dibs on the same territory because they sailed by it in roughly the same year. Britain and Spain happen to have this problem a lot in the Pacific Northwest. They try to call dibs on all of the same places. And as you can probably guess from the name, the San Juan Islands officially got discovered first by the Spanish during an expedition that was going on from 1790 to 1792. They're named after the Mexican Viceroy at the time, who, as far as I know, never even saw the island named after him. Again, these guys have a lot of places to name. They were really pushing their inspiration to the limit, trying to get as many names on the map as possible. But while the Spanish were doing that, also in 1792, George Vancouver, who was an English explorer, also visited the three biggest islands in the archipelago. And the Hudson's Bay Company, which was an English corporation, briefly occupied the area. So both nations want this territory, and they also want... A lot of the other islands all up and down the West Coast. While the Brits want the right to trade freely with the Spanish, the Spanish are not too keen on trading with the Brits. Remember how hard that Russian guy had to work just to get some food from the Spanish? The Spanish have a kind of no no trading with the other colonial powers policy. A spat over the seizure of some vessels very nearly leads to war at one point, especially when Spain pulls out another papal bull, this one from 1493, claiming that the Pope already granted them the right to claim this territory during a border dispute with Portugal 300 years ago.
0: So how would a Pope 300 years earlier who had no idea these lands existed or probably thought they were in China or something decide that Spain owned them.
1: So when Spain and Portugal were fighting over this territory in the New World, the Pope gets between them, which he can do because they're both Catholic countries, and basically says, whatever's in this general zone over here belongs to Spain, and what's over there belongs to Portugal. The San Juan Islands, like pretty much the whole west coast of the U.S., fell into that very vague zone that the Pope came up with. So according to this idea of dividing up the land, it doesn't really matter what's there. It just means that the Pope sort of waved his hand over the map and went, all of this belongs to Spain.
0: And I'm sure that was very convincing for the British. The you know, They heard the argument of this leader of a religion we don't follow anymore because we're Anglican now said 300 years ago that this land belongs to Spain. They just packed it in, said, sounds fair.
1: The English are not having any of this papist nonsense. They have been all in on the right of first discovery so far, but now they changed their tune. Now they're claiming that the right of sovereignty should apply. To claim land, you need to be able to occupy it with actual people living on the land. And uh, that means you have to import some colonists over instead of just naming it after people who live on the other side of the world. And of course, once again, neither side is particularly interested in the rights of people from the actual Nootka nation who had been living there the entire time. So here is the compromise that Britain and Spain come up with in what is called the Nootka Sound Convention. So both nations are free to make use of the Pacific for navigation and fishing. So no one else's boat is going to get seized for being in the wrong stretch of water. Both nations are free to trade and settle on land that is unoccupied. Once again, big air quotes around unoccupied there, my good Christian fellow. As part of hashing out the details of who gets which bit of land, Spain proposes that the Strait of Juan de Fuca should be the dividing line between English and Spanish territory, and that the dividing line should run to the west of the islands, uh, which would be in what we now call the the Haro Strait, instead of to the east side, which is what would be called the Rosario Strait today. Britain, on the other hand, thinks the border should be just a skosh north of San Francisco.
0: So that's a lot of space up there. If I'm doing my Washington State geography correct, the Strait of Juan de Fuca is up by the border with Canada. San Francisco, you may have noticed, is not next to the border with Canada. Uh, so who wins that? Who wins that one?
1: They actually do not come to an agreement.
0: Wait, how, though? I've been to the San Juan Islands and I've seen the pig war stuff, and I know it's not a war between Spain and Britain. It's a conflict between Britain and the US. So how does Spain end up like exiting this whole sitch, then?
1: So in... 1819, Spain decides it's going to cede its claim to this territory, but it is not going to cede its claim to Britain. In the Transcontinental Treaty, Spain cedes this territory to the United States. Good old US of A.
0: We need like a, a soundboard for every time the US just unexpectedly enters a case. We can start playing the Star Spangled Banner in the background. <laughs>
1: I just want a jarring eagle screech every time. Oh, there it
0: is. Yes.
1: This is actually not going to be the last jump scare by a ter by a country that you are not expecting to enter this dispute. There's another fantastic one coming up at the end of this. Can't wait. But the brand new country of America has been busy discovering air quotes again, buying and seizing territory for itself. This is the era of westward expansion in America. A movement not just to explore and claim the western part of the continent, but to settle it. And let's be real here, make sure it's as white and Christian as possible. As Americans get interested in land out west, they are intrigued by stories about the Pacific Northwest. And I must say, as a resident myself, we do have it all. We have beautiful natural vistas, we have easy access to shipping lanes, there are timber rich old growth forests. And there's fertile volcanic soil that makes it an excellent farmland as well.
0: And as long as you get there before the 1990s, you'll beat all the tech bros that have ruined Seattle ever since.
1: What's the early 1800s equivalent of a tech bro? Would that be a steam fellow?
0: Is that I mean. I guess the, I guess the technically loggers and uh, sex workers would have been the original tech bros of Seattle, right?
1: Actually, yes, uh, we will get to the sex workers because they are going to play a part in this story as well. This is a very, very local story.
0: I mean, the foundation of life in the Pacific Northwest, fundamentally, an important part of our history and culture here in the great state of Washington.
1: So the whole Oregon Territory, which includes what we now consider the state of Washington today, ends up being a tricky area for Britain and the United States. So let's talk about potential claims on this land. If you're going by right of discovery, both nations discovered the Oregon Territory in the same year. George Vancouver from Britain was tooling around the coast, naming everything after his school chums all the way back in 1792. But Robert Gray from America was sailing up the Columbia River, discovering the same territory in the same year. In a particularly odd twist of fate, Those two explorers actually ran into each other at sea, and they even compared notes while they were out there. Vancouver said that he didn't believe that there was a river where Gray claimed to have found one, and that's how Gray ended up going up the Columbia River and Vancouver didn't. So as you can see, the cartography in this era is not particularly precise.
0: He missed the Columbia River. That's a pretty big river. Like as rivers go, it's not one of our smaller ones.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was a pretty big miss for him. So after the War of 1812, a famous time period where Britain and America hashed out some of their territorial disputes, the two nations decide, you know what, on this one, let's try something different and go with joint occupation of this territory.
0: So literally, it's the awkward sitch of like the two exes living in the same apartment, but it's geopolitics, so they all have guns, too.
1: That is pretty much geopolitically what is happening, and as you can expect, the situation gets real tense. Americans are hearing these amazing things about Oregon territory, and they start moving out west. Britain is having a hard time finding enough settlers that they can field to throw at this territory to match the Americans moving in. Britain's interest in this area is more about commerce than settling even more farmland, And remember, Britain also owns all of Canada, and it is having some issues with rebellions further up north that it is having a hard time putting down. In the 1840s, Britain's finally willing to negotiate with America about officially drawing some dividing lines about who owns what, finally putting some tape down the center of that apartment. If you've ever heard the phrase 54-40 or fight, that is an American slogan suggesting that America should push its territory all the way up to the 54th parallel, which is right about where the southernmost end of Alaska is today. So a big chunk of what is now Canada, Americans are saying we should get all of that. That should all be ours.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, British Columbia, Alberta, lovely places worth starting a war over. British Columbia actually is lovely. Alberta, I haven't been. I hear there's a lot of weird cowboys and no rats.
1: So in 1846, Britain and America come to an agreement and they draw the line in the spot where the U.S.-Canada border is to this day, so significantly under where the most aggressive Americans wanted it to be. But this is going to get real tricky. Britain wants to keep the entirety of Vancouver Island. And like I said, Vancouver Island dips below that line and slots into Washington state. And America says, "Okay, fine, I will agree to this. America says we will draw the dividing line through the major channel of water between the mainland and Vancouver Island.
0: Wait, but there are islands in that major chain, that major channel of water, including the San Juans. You can't just draw. Where does the line go? Where does the line go, Demetria?
1: Where does that line go? The treaty just says that the border goes through the major channel of water, but it does not clarify whether it's going to run through the water on the right or left side of those islands. And Haro and Rosario Strait are about the same size. Neither of them is the major channel. All of this arguing is holding up signing up a really important treaty between America and Britain. So the two sides say, you know what? we're just gonna go ahead and sign it the way it is. And we're just gonna say, officially the islands are still in dispute. Everything else, we just need to clear this off our plate. So all of this has been a very, very long lead up to what is about to kick off. Britain and America have mostly agreed that they are going to stop cohabitating on the same territory, but neither side is clear on who owns the islands. And neither side wants to give the territory up. So while these nations are squabbling, the citizens of the nations are going ahead and moving out to these islands. Citizens of both Britain and America live on this disputed territory, and they're living on San Juan Island. Neither group wants to give up the land that they thought was theirs. And these are civilians. These are not people that you can order around like they're your own army. But living on territory that is in dispute comes with a lot of problems. You very quickly start running into problems like whose laws are we even following around here and who's in charge of enforcing those laws? So in the mid-1850s, people start doing what people do. They start testing the limits of who gets to consider the island's part of their jurisdiction. In 1855, some Americans from the mainland try some frontier justice by forming a sheriff's posse and confiscating 35 breeding rams owned by the British Hudson's Bay Company. So they sail on over to those islands and just start stealing sheep. Sheriff Ellis Barnes of Watcom County, which is on the American side, claims that he is doing this to collect back taxes owed to the American government for grazing these sheep on American soil.
0: Yeah, I hate it when the feds come, the IRS comes and they steal all my breeding rams because they're like, you owe taxes. And I'm like, what the hell? Those are those were my ancestral breeding rams.
1: The British side counters that said sheriff staged a closed auction for these sheep with bidders consisting of just himself and the members of the posse who confiscated the sheep, and that their confiscation was pretty obviously theft. Which, in fairness, it does seem to have been. The U.S. Secretary of State ends up having to step in to this hot, hot sheep dispute and it has to tell its own sides, officials, that you have got to stop harassing the British guys. We cannot go to war over this.
0: First sheep, now we're going to we're gonna get to pigs eventually. Some wild nonsense. So I get, the core of the issue is that the U.S. says we own the land, but also they have to step in every so often and be like, hey, don't mess with the British. They should be able to live here, even though we own it. We're going to treat them like they also own it but don't worry, we still own it.
1: Yeah, you can see this is not a long-term sustainable solution as more people are moving onto the island and there's more potential for disputes about who owns what. In 1857, the two governments come together and say, okay, fine, this has gone on long enough. We're going to have officials from each side meet and do a joint boundary survey. The British and U.S. commissioners meet over six times that year, But each commissioner has been told by their own side that they need to hold on to the islands at all costs. So once again, they can't come to an agreement because both sides want these islands.
0: Score one for diplomacy.
1: So even though the ownership of these islands is in dispute, more and more people are moving on to them. If you are about our age, you probably played some variant of the Oregon Trail game, an edutainment masterpiece that taught kids about this era of American expansionism through allowing them to type the word ass on the graves of their kids who died of dysentery.
0: It really was a better age of video games when you think back to it.
1: As many as half a billion Americans traveled to the Northwest overland during this period. And that is not counting the Trail of Tears, uh, in which tens of thousands of indigenous Americans were displaced from their own land and forcibly moved out west. Those folks were being moved to reservations, which were under their own legal systems, which we will also mention a little bit later here, when the legal situation gets real complicated. I'm also not counting here the migrations of Americans to other areas like California in search of land or gold. But this is still a huge number of people who are flowing out west. Uh, There's land for the taking and Americans are going to want some of that land even if the exact legal status is a little iffy. Part of the reason that so many people are moving out west right now is that the U.S. government has made it very easy to claim land out west. In 1950, they passed the Donation Land Claim Act which was promoting homesteading in, in the Oregon Territory by allowing any white male American citizen or married couple to snag a huge chunk of land for free, literally just by showing up. And even when that act expires, Americans can buy land for twenty five an acre. Pretty good deal, even with conversion.
0: Yeah, man, that's a, that's pretty wild. That's very cheap.
1: And if that is not a good enough reason to move out west, in 1858, a prospector strikes gold on the Fraser River, which is a river that is technically in British Columbia, but its watershed goes right into that strait that has been causing so many nations so much trouble. And now we finally get to our criminal, or is he, in this story. An American man named Lyman Cutler decides to head over and get in on the gold rush, he ends up on San Juan Island, which can be a tough place to spend the winter, but probably not as tough as panning for gold in the middle of the winter in Canada. And he decides, what the hell? I'm out here. I'll make my home on this island. When the, 18, when the 1859 planting season rolls around, he gets started on a nice crop and he plants some potatoes, which grow pretty well out there. He can plant them based on, you know, cut up bits of old potatoes. Pretty safe bet. Now, one of Cutler's neighbors is an Irishman named Charles Griffin. Griffin has been hired to run that sheep ranch on the island that was the cause of so much dispute back in 1855. Griffin doesn't just run the sheep ranch for the Hudson Bay Company. He also keeps some animals of his own, and he lets them wander and forage for food on their own.
0: You know, these hipsters and their free-range meat, they've been ruining the Pacific Northwest for, I guess, literal centuries at this point.
1: So here is the dramatic moment, the moment of truth. On June 15th, 1859, one of Griffin's pigs finds a great place for a snack, and that place is Cutler's Potato Patch. This is not the first time this particular pig has gone rooting around in Cutler's Garden, and he is... Getting pretty pissed off that his potatoes are being eaten. So he does the American thing. He shoots and kills the pig.
0: Well, Lick, Demetria, the Second Amendment clearly gives me the right to shoot any pig I see with anything I could possibly want, up to and including an Abrams battle tank. So I don't see the issue here.
1: That's the American way, baby. Vaporize that pig.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is what freedom's all about.
1: So the two neighbors had actually been living together pretty well up until this point, even though they were citizens of different nations. Cutler goes over to Griffin's house and said, hey, I had to shoot your pig because he was in my potatoes again. I'll go ahead and pay you $10 for the loss. I guess he feels bad about it.
0: That's pretty civil, right? Offering to pay him back. How much is that in like modern dollars?
1: That is $350 in today's money. And if you look at port prices today... That is about on par with what it costs to buy a pig, at least a pig that you're planning to eat and not breed.
0: You know, considering that he was exercising his God-given right in the U.S. Constitution to shoot pigs, I think this seems very fair.
1: I'd imagine a pig that you had to ship all the way out to this remote island might be worth a little bit more per pound than your modern factory-farmed hog, but it does seem like Cutler is attempting to do the right thing here. But Griffin is pissed about this. He is pissed off at these Americans who keep showing up on the island, claiming land and making free with his livestock. So he says, no, no, this pig is worth one hundred dollars.
0: Now, I'm not great with math. Uh, I'm doing a little a little little paperwork in my head here. And that seems a little exorbitant.
1: Yeah, that is over three thousand five hundred dollars in today's money, and there are not many pigs in the world that are worth that kind of dough.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't eat a lot of pork. Yeah, you know, I guess insert Havana Gila here, but that seems uh, that seems a little pricey.
1: That is a ridiculous amount to pay for this pig, and Cutler pretty understandably takes offense about this. I mean, he was a random drifter who has just started a subsistence farm on this island. He does not have $100 to spare. The most famous, although possibly apocryphal, account of this argument has Cutler saying, it was eating my potatoes, and Griffin responding, it is up to you to keep your potatoes out of my pig.
0: Truly two adults handling a situation as best they can to diffuse tension and just really demonstrate their shared understanding of good principles together.
1: Turns out that doesn't go over very well. Cutler heads back to his own home and Griffin goes to the authorities. Specifically, he goes to his own country's authorities and British authorities start threatening to arrest Cutler. So here's where our actual criminal record comes in. If this is American territory, then American authorities should be in charge of settling this dispute and arresting Cutler if he did commit a crime by shooting the pig. If it's British territory, then Brits have the jurisdiction. But because this territory is in dispute, nobody knows whose jurisdiction it actually is, so British authorities threatening to arrest an American citizen on possibly American soil is legally a huge deal. And what's more, this incident prompts the British authorities to start saying they're going to evict all of the Americans on San Juan Island as trespassers, even though those Americans say that America has given them the right to be there.
0: You know, I realize I'm biased here, but this seems like a bit of an extreme reaction to one pig. Pork is not that good, guys
1: oh, if you think this is an extreme reaction, just you wait, because we are about to escalate all the way to the top. The Americans who live on this island go, oh, shit, things are getting serious. And they send a delegation to a guy named Brigadier General William S. Harney, who is the commander of the Department of Oregon. Now, Harney is a Tennessee boy with, let's say, a checkered history. He has a bit of a problem with authority. Also a problem with repeatedly beating and torturing women, slaves and Native Americans. But he had gotten out of hot water, including an attempt at a court martial by paddling around with Andrew Jackson. Jackson apparently appreciated the way Harney would show he cared by doing little things like publicly laying out anyone who dared to mock Jackson in public.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe he's a monster who tortures and murders innocent people. But he, he understands the important things, like punching people for exercising their First Amendment rights.
1: This is not the first time that Harney has taken it upon himself to solve a vegetable patch problem. At Fort Winnebago, he found a soldier's dog rooting around in the fort's vegetable patch and decided to brutally beat that dog. So he had a reputation for extreme overreactions to things.
0: That sounds like a thing a cartoon villain would do to, like, establish that he's bad.
1: Oh, he's about to get so much more villainous. Are you ready for this?
0: I'm so, let's go.
1: So Harney is fresh off a bunch of looting and destroying native villages with a side of threatening to hang some Mormons. And inexplicably, at one point, he was trying to pull a weird scam where he pretended to resurrect a dog to demonstrate the power of the white man.
0: What the fuck, man?
1: (laughs) So, Harney is this completely crazy dude that the U.S. government just kind of sends after whoever they want to intimidate. So, he's just been going around the West fucking shit up. He has actually been assigned to the Pacific Northwest because he is so very good at fucking over Native Americans, but by the time he arrives on the assignment in 1858, Peace has already been established with the local tribes, and no one needs his particularly genocidal set of skills anymore. So when this delegation shows up and says, hey, we're having problems with the British, he goes, fuck yes, let's start a war. This is why I'm out here. This is what I want to do. And in July, he sends 60 infantrymen to occupy San Juan Island to protect the American settlers. And he just keeps sending more and more soldiers. By the middle of August, there are almost 500 American soldiers on this land because he just keeps loading them over there.
0: You know, on the one hand, this is kind of the fault of the British authorities. But on the other hand, I imagine they do not love this dramatic escalation of tension.
1: Shockingly, the Brits are not so happy about this one random American who's decided that he wants to provoke a war. And it turns out that Harney's normal strategy of completely steamrolling largely defenseless settlements is not particularly effective against the might of the British Empire. So Harney sends a total of 461 men to occupy the island. James Douglas, the governor of British Columbia, chooses to respond with a total of 2,140 men. That's right, the Brits do what the Brits do best. They send in a bunch of warships and royal marines to also occupy the island.
0: I mean, I can't I don't know how you didn't see that one coming. Coming like it's the 1850s. America is like a Sweden tier regional power at best. And Great Britain is the biggest empire on the planet. Like, I guess the man fucked around and then he did, in fact, find out.
1: For once in his military career, Harney is experiencing a problem that he cannot solve with overwhelming force and or pretending that he has the power to resurrect dogs. Do
0: you you know that, though? Has he tried the dog thing?
1: He actually, in his his attempted demonstration of resurrecting the dog, he did actually kill the dog. So it didn't even work the first time. (laughs) So for weeks, the two sides face off on Griffin Bay and the tensions keep ratcheting up and... Of course, Hardy, for his part, is doing nothing to dispel that tension,
0: and what happens next? I mean, i my understanding is they didn't actually start shooting at each other, but it sounds like they came pretty close
1: so this is an era when getting news and people across the continent or across the world can take a good long while. So both sides are standing off, and they are waiting for the order to either start shooting or start backing down to come from their distant superiors. They're really distant, in the case of Britain's superiors. And while that happens, a lot of the more local Brits who are in the Pacific Ocean start responding. One of those local British guys is a guy with an incredibly English-sounding name, Captain Geoffrey Thomas Phipps Hornby.
0: No, you made that up. That's fake.
1: That's real. That's his real name.
0: They... God damn it.
1: So Governor Douglas orders Captain Hornby to land his Marines and oust those upstart Americans. And Captain Hornby goes, dude, no, I I am not doing that. I am not starting a war over this. I'm going to sit here and wait for my boss who was also in the Pacific to show up. And I'm just going to I'm going to let my middle manager handle this one. And then the British middle manager shows up. Admiral Robert Baines rolls up to the scene with his 84-gun ship of the line. This guy is the commander-in-chief of the British Navy in the Pacific, so he's about as high-ranking as you can get in this area right now. He has been in the Navy for a very, very long time. He has seen some shit in the Greek War of Independence and the Crimean War, and he is in his 60s at this point. He is not exactly eager to kick off another war. When he first heard about this conflict, he apparently responded, quote, Tut tut, no, no, the damn fools.
0: That's a real people actually talk like that. That's a real quotation that an actual human being said and not like a chatbot.
1: As far as I can tell, that is a real quote. So Baines, as you can tell from his very British way of expressing it, thinks this entire thing is stupid and he is not going to start a war over this. So he hears about this whole situation and he says, we are not going to attack the Americans, even though we massively outnumber them and we have a sort of valid legal excuse to do so. Bain suggests that both sides go back to the, let's just occupy the same land and see how it goes deal again, this time on San Juan Island instead of the entire Oregon territory. And America goes, okay, We have got to send a diplomat out to negotiate. They send a guy in in his 70s, Lieutenant General Winfield Scott. That guy gets dispatched by President James Buchanan. The two old men hash it out and they say, sure, this joint occupation seems like a great idea. Worked so well the last time. Let's just keep it up.
0: Oh, yeah, it it works. So it worked perfectly. How could it how could it fail to go great again?
1: Well, this time they're going to try something different. Each side is going to have a military base on the island. Scott and Baines pretty much come up with this whole plan themselves. There's no cross-continent telegraph or Pony Express yet. So this is two military guys hashing out an agreement that seems obvious to them because they are both lifelong military guys. People back in D.C. and back in London are freaking out because this massive diplomatic incident is happening. There is no way to get diplomats to teleport out there to micromanage the situation. They have to trust these two crusty old dudes to just figure out a solution. And let me tell you about the solution they come up with. Both sides are going to have military camps on the island. The English camp is going to be set up on the northwestern side of the island, which is just a quick hop across the Harrow Strait to Vancouver Island, the land that is definitely British. The American camp gets set up on the southeastern side of the island, just a little bit closer to the land that is definitely American. Both sides can have a maximum of 100 military men on the island at any time. No more. So, you can't have a situation where the Brits have thousands of people parked there and the Americans can't field that many people. This is again not a big island. There are less than 13 miles between these two outposts. Both sides are going to build some permanent structures on the island. Some of these actually are still standing today. You can actually visit these camps today. And they dig in and they plan for a long occupation. And then Both sides just sit there. Each side agrees that they only have jurisdiction over their own citizens. They can remand a foreign lawbreaker to the authorities of their own government, but the Americans cannot legally arrest or punish a Brit and vice versa. This causes some problems because the behavior of military personnel is actually covered by different legal codes than civilians even if those civilians are under martial law, meaning the army is enforcing the law. There were two jurisdictions on the island before, British law and American law. Now there are gonna be four jurisdictions on the island and which one you fall into depends on who you are. So you can be a British member of the military under British military law. You can be a British civilian under British martial law. You can be an American member of the military under American military law or you can be an American civilian under American martial law. And to make things even more complicated, because the British military members on the island are technically members of the Navy who are hanging out on land, they are not subject to the naval articles of war because those are rules for men at sea. They are not at sea. They are on an island in the middle of the sea. So the law that technically applies to them is the Mutiny Act.
0: And all of this is over. I cannot stress enough. I stress this enough. An island that is admittedly very pretty, but is not that big, does not have a lot of great farmland. A couple of nice ports. Today, there are some very good restaurants. Not the kind of thing that would make or break one's one's country, though.
1: Yeah, 55 square miles of fairly decent farmland. There are some other islands in this archipelago, uh, like Orcas Island, that are pretty nice. But... uh, All of this fighting is over not really the most important land in the world, let's say. So
0: if there's one thing that we love on this show, it's a crazy legal boondoggle, which it seems like we have here. And this seems like a situation that's going to be a little bit unstable, given what's going on here. So how long does this very confusing joint occupation of the island actually last?
1: Well, once this is set up, tensions mostly calm down and the two sides occupied the land in peace. And this situation continues for 12 years. So folks who know some American history might be doing some calculations in their head. Some momentous things happen in the next 12 years, including the civil war in America and various colonial wars in the British Empire. And while that's all going on, a hundred dudes from each side are just camping out on this island.
0: Yeah, can you imagine like you sign up to join the U.S. military because you're like, I'm going to go fight to expunge one of the fundamental evils of this country and just, you know, help it turn a new leaf. And they're like, sounds good. Here's you know, here's your ticket to the middle of nowhere. Uh, enjoy, you know, enjoy your your multi-year tour of duty in this useless island That we only care about because of one pig that got shot.
1: Yeah, for the folks who are hanging out on this island, the only real enemies are boredom and despondency, and occasionally scarlet fever. That's a big problem on the island. So, to keep things lively, the two sides start inviting each other over for special occasions. The American camp hosts the British on the 4th of July. The Brits celebrate Queen Victoria's birthday with the Americans they start getting pretty cozy with each other and occasionally they get a little bit too cozy because we do have a record of a fellow who was a bugler named George Hughes he was working for the british but he gets so buddy buddy with the americans that he decides to walk off the english camp and start bugling for the other side this causes another diplomatic blow up and that is eventually resolved by pretending that the George Hughes bugling for the Americans might not be the same George Hughes who was bugling for the Brits and sending Hughes to a different American fort off the island and just deciding that he was American now.
0: That's what freedom's all about, baby.
1: But then things start getting a little spicy because there are more and more American settlers moving onto this island and they don't like having to live under American martial law. By now, these folks are officially Washingtonians, and they want to do what people from Washington love to do. Drink local whiskey and sleep with loose women.
0: It's our state motto. No, it's not. Or maybe it is. You don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody.
1: (laughs) So do we want to pause for a minute and count the number of different legal systems that people living on or around this land are living under or think that they should be living under?
0: Well, okay, we've got the the four primary ones, right? The British military law, American military law, British civilian martial law, American military martial law. What else are we missing?
1: So in addition to that, and in addition to the fact that the British military law changes when its military gets on a boat, we also have American civil law happening in Washington state. We have British civil law happening in Canada. We have American laws that apply to reservations, and there are actually quite a lot of reservations around this area that are reachable by boat. There are also British laws applying to British reservations. And of course, you have the original legal codes of tribes indigenous to this area, which of course, nobody is paying any attention to because that's the American way.
0: And also the British way and the Canadian way. So that's nine different legal codes that we're potentially dealing with here.
1: Yes. If anyone had committed an act that was a crime under one set of laws, but not another, things could get really complicated really fast. And there was one thing that you could do under American civil law, but not martial law, that ended up causing most of the problems on the island. That was bringing whiskey onto the island and selling it to soldiers. So the main occupation of all these military men on the island ends up becoming dealing with whiskey smugglers and also dealing with protests from their own citizens who hate not being able to get whiskey on the island.
0: I mean, to be fair, I would hate that, too, but I would probably just not live on the island,
1: And as I jokingly alluded to, sex work is at this time legal in Washington state, but it is not legal on San Juan Island. But there are sex workers moving to the island and trying to start a business there. That's causing some problems.
0: 200 young men as soldiers. Uh, I mean, that's what you call a captive client base right there.
1: (laughs) A remarkable amount of the history of Washington state is the history of sex work because the uh, the gender ratios were so extremely skewed. And even by the standards of Washington state, the gender ratios are extremely skewed on this island because of all the military men. So this situation does not end until someone steps in to serve as mediator in the debate. And that's someone, that someone who was going to end this legal boondoggle is Kaiser Wilhelm.
0: Wait, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany?
1: That's right, baby. What? What? In 1871, uh, Britain and America finally get together to sign the Treaty of Washington. And what they decide is that they clearly cannot come to an agreement on this one. So they are going to make the emperor of Germany referee it for them.
0: Did they just throw a dart at a map and be like, let's go with this guy?
1: Well, it would be a while before Germany really ruined its reputation for dividing up territory.
0: Yeah, that is true.
1: So the Kaiser decides he is going to go ahead and draw the boundary line through the Harrow Strait, and he's going to give this territory to America. In November of 1872, the British officially withdraw from the island. They leave behind a few guys who were quarantined for scarlet fever and had to make make their way home later. They also leave behind quite a few civilians who just kind of become American because they continue living on the island. Some of their descendants actually still live on the island to this day, and that is the end of the occupation of San Juan Island. at uh, It is remembered today as the greatest war that America never fought.
0: I mean, we've we have fought a lot of wars, but it's true we haven't not. We haven't not chosen to fight many wars in our day.
1: Yeah, so this is actually something that does get talked about uh, quite a bit as sort of a nice story of a conflict that didn't happen, a war that actually was successfully averted. And we don't really have a lot of moments like that in American history. Uh, So what are your thoughts on the sentiment of memorializing the war that didn't happen?
0: I mean, I think a lot of the reason the pig war story is so popular around here, why it's so big on San Juan Island is also because of the American relationship today with the UK and possibly to a greater extent in Washington with Canada. Like, one imagines that, yeah, you know, a lot of what, a lot of, in that same way that history is always a response to what's what we're dealing with today, a lot of that kind of, oh, isn't that nice? They, you know, that sentiment. Is kind of grounded in knowing today what our relationship uh, in the United States is with Canada and with uh, with Great Britain. Um, I'm not saying that like it wouldn't have mattered otherwise, but I think a lot of the reason the story is kind of told in this very feel good way is uh, is because of that. Because instead, we handle our disputes today with those countries through hockey, or in the case of the UK, through seeing whose uh, whose national football slash soccer teams can be worse.
1: Yeah, it is. It is definitely true that uh, America is a country with a very contentious history of of who we allow over our borders. Um, but a lot of Americans, even Americans who aren't very friendly about things like immigration, are quite proud of the fact that that uh, there's such a peaceful relationship between America and Canada. Uh, we don't even technically need a passport to go to Canada. You can get an enhanced driver's license in Washington state that lets you go to Canada.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the, a lot of that, um, the popularity of the story, I think does come down to kind of the racial politics of it and the perception of like, Oh, these are two white countries working out their differences in a very civilized way. Um, One imagines I am not, you know, as familiar with Mexican history. It's not really taught in the New York state curriculum and I've had to mostly self-teach it. And I know, we obviously we did fight some wars with Mexico, but uh, if you want a very different look at what the relations between two countries can look like, that's a that's an illustrative example where they're not quite treating each other as equals in this very nice way, this very British way. Tut tut, tut tut, I say old boy, I can't do the accent.
1: So I thought this would be a great one to end the year on because it's a great opportunity to have a discussion about history and especially about historiography, because the question of how you fit a story like the pig war into a greater narrative of history, there are a lot of different angles. You can approach that from my dear history professor. Would you say that this is the story of uh, great men who shaped history with their decisions? Uh, I would
0: say, and could could you cut in the internationale behind me for uh, the actual final audio of this? Uh, I would say this is representative of the fundamental tensions that lie at the heart of international capitalism being uh, worked out and revealing the kind of faultiness of the fundamental structure, um, but temporarily being adjusted for by the the overall superstructure of the capitalist economy, um, but really kind of revealing the fundamental weakness that would, of course, later be exploited in the First World War Leading to the rise of socialism and, of course, the inevitable triumph of the workers.
1: All right, comrade.
0: I mean, it is an interesting question. Um, for those of you who aren- don't know the term or forgotten, historiography is the study of how we talk about history. Um, and there's a couple of different ways to do it. I was joking, but Marxist, hist- Marxist historiography, reading ev- all of history through the lens of like class interaction... Is one popular form of historiography less so today, but there's still kind of a a strong core out there.
1: I would say, actually, I'm not really a big fan of Marxist theory, but if you're going to apply it to anything, this land dispute being caused by the fact that both sides had a commercial stake in the islands might actually be one of the better applications of it.
0: I mean, I just don't want to go too far down into this tangent. Marxist historiography, I think, is useful in some contexts. There are interesting ideas to be gleaned from it. Um, I always have trouble with trying to read everything through the lens of Marx because not all of human history is economic. Um, but, you know, similarly, there's other like the great man theory is the another classic historiographical theory that it's. Famous people who move events and, you know, that's really the they're the ones who shape history. That's much less popular today in the academic world. But I think still has a pretty big following outside of academia.
1: Yeah, I, w- I would say so, Um, because the great man theory fits really naturally into sort of the way we tell stories with a with a protagonist who has all the agency. However, I would say. Uh, while a bunch of high-ranking men ended up being the ones to decide the course of this conflict, I would not call many of them the great men of history.
0: I'd heard of Winfield Scott before, but that was it. Yeah, not yeah. like a.
1: This is this is a bunch of um, much lower-ranking military guys who were there because they had been posted to a fairly remote place. Um, for reasons like happen to be very good at fucking up native settlements, or um, uh, just happen to be working their way up the 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 ladder of the uh, British Navy.
0: I'm gonna say the correct historiographical reading of this incident is through the lens of the Hegelian dialectic, because nobody actually understands Hegel, and therefore no one can prove I'm wrong. <laughs>
1: So a lot of people, when they talk about this this episode, um, I think they are at least subconsciously believing in the whole want-of-a-nail theory of history, um, the idea that a few random events and decisions by men who just happened to be on the scene at the time could have changed nearly everything. Um, I think the fact that the Pig War does get sort of memorialized as something that could have become a war is because a lot of people do at least a little bit buy into that want of a nail idea that like a few different decisions and it could have become a war.
0: That point of view, I think, is very natural, but it's it tends to be a little bit like it's hard to argue because it's inherently arguing a hypothetical. For example, you know, you can say, oh, this could have turned into a war. It certainly could have turned into a shootout between the two sides. That doesn't really determine how this news would have landed in Washington, D.C., where there's already a lot of concern in 1859 about the potential you know the p- political issues in the U.S. they're going to turn into a civil war that doesn't say how it's going to land when it gets to London finally where Britain is already involved in both the second opium war and heavily financing uh the like civil war the Taiping war in China and that's just off the top of my head I'm sure they had a bunch of other shit going on too
1: oh they were doing it, a little light atrocity in Africa too
0: um so I'm, I'm always a little bit skeptical with that just because I'm always I mean, I frustrate my listeners, my students, everyone with this. Hypotheticals are hard. They're dangerous. It's you know, you're inherently making an argument about something that didn't happen, which means you don't really have any evidence. You have <laughs> supposition at best.
1: So you're kind of coming down on the side of uh, larger forces are moving throughout this story. Um, what happened Might not have happened over a pig, but it would eventually have happened over something. But the outcome probably would have been fairly similar because of everyone's uh, everyone's sort of investment in a certain outcome.
0: I mean, I would say that it's impossible to say for sure how things could have been different, but it's fairly easy to see why this, you know, why this was resolvable in the way that it was given the circumstances and that that has more to do with kind of larger forces that are at play in the U S Canada relationship than the actions of any two people who happen to be involved or the class revolution or whatever else.
1: So we, we missed any sort of major, uh, major strains of interpretation. You want to get in there?
0: I mean, who has the time, honestly, um, I mean, I think this is something that is always the idea of historiography is always a little bit tricky because people, yeah, there's always a a tendency to try and treat history like it's this kind of magic thing we can divine answers from. Yeah, that's the the line about those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. But you also have to be aware of what your limits are when you study the past and how much you can really divine from lessons that are from different places, different times, different people. I don't know. I'm it's complicated. I'm skeptical about everything. That's what history is all about. Be skeptical.
1: <laughs> and with that note, before we cap off this year by breaking the mutiny act, should we uh give a shout out to the generous patrons who supported us this year. We're really really grateful for you. Um and Tell folks where to find us.
0: Absolutely. Uh, And I totally have the intro outro sheet open and ready to go because I'm prepared. Uh, Most importantly, I guess don't look for us really on Twitter or Facebook because we have presences there, but those websites are kind of a mess. But do look for us on Tumblr.com slash blog slash facing backward.
1: That's right. Uh, Go ahead give us a reblog, send us an ask. Uh, one lowly person already sent us a great ask about a, about a uh, character from history I've been trying to research. So uh, once again, find us on Tumblr. We're facing backward. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash backward. Our generous patrons who pledged at the shout out tier are Jan Leonard, Stephen Elkins, Martin Oliveira, Clark Canning, Egan Kellett, Matt Haynes, Jackie Frostocker, Monkey Sack, Alayla McCulloch, Kieran Murphy, Peter Wales, Robert Prine, William, Arno, Jonas Brandis, Nicholas Kroll, Jerry Spinrad, Jared Stevens, Jeffrey Dwork, Stefan Frushka, Joshua Kane, Robbie and Cat, Jacob Key, A House is a Perfectly Cromulent Mascot, and The Fish I Catch are Road Scholars compared to Samuel Alito Schmuck.
0: You can also find us at FacingBackward.com where you can find out more about uh, this show. You can see all our crazy notes about, well, really, Demetrius' crazy notes about fighting over weird bits of random territory and also surprise Russians. Uh, until next year, folks, thank you for listening. Again, thank you to our patrons who support the show. Um, and we'll see you all in 2023.
1: Yeah, that's right. We're History Podcast, but we're going to the future. What do you want to start a war over?
0: The Hegelian dialectic.
1: I'm cutting you off.